Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your Women in Science History podcast. I'm Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma. And it's November. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep, it is. No more I spooky almost, stuff. Um, I almost did like a parasitologist this week, but I'm like, it's November. You know, spooky's done. No more spooky. <laughs> no more spooky. It's too cold for parasite. No, I'm... Yeah. November, November <laughs> is not a notoriously day. parasite time. Notoriously, no. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike October, which is full of parasites. <laughs> it's full of parasites, yeah. I'm surprised more yeah. people don't dress up as parasites for Halloween. As I guess parasites? that's kind of a hard one. Yeah, you can't buy a lot of pre-made uh, hookworm <laughs> costumes. <laughs> uh, but what if you could? Um, tick costumes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Toxoplasmosis. You know what? They are the scariest thing of all in my eyes. They're parasites. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But also the best. I've never seen someone dress up as a microbiome. Have you? No, I would... What, would you just put a lot of little dots on you? Yeah, like, uh, just be a lot of, you know, instead of dressing up as one single bacteria, you do a bunch of different types of bacteria, like tape them all over you, I guess. Have you seen someone dressed up as a single bacteria? I don't know, but I'm sure someone has. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. in my heart, I know 100% somebody's done that. <laughs> Like, someone's dressed up as E. coli. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the... Yeah. the Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we dive headfirst? Okay, Emlyn. Let's get, let's get going. Let's jump in it. So, my question for you is, um, do you know any of the history of soy in the United States? <laughs> Uh, I know about soy boys. Soy boys? And that's about it. Isn't that, like, a term for, like, guys that are just, like, what? <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to yes. talk about it. <laughs> yeah, soy boys is, like, a derogatory term used right. by yeah. some people for people yeah. who are effeminate because like, they eat masculine yeah vegetarian stuff versus well i'm not meat. talking about any soy boys today <laughs> no soy boys yeah um <laughs> but good. like do you know um where soy like comes from or anything like where it originated china yeah yes at Kill least, it. like, in the eastern mm -hmm. or, like, Asian part part of the world, right? Okay. Um, okay. So, today, I'm going to talk about the Chinese-American woman who basically introduced soy to the United States. Nice. Interesting. 
Okay. And this is, so this lady, uh, she goes by a few different names uh-huh. throughout her life, but the main, so her full, her full <laughs> maiden name, the name she was born with was Yai Mei Kin. Okay. Okay. But she had a lot of nicknames over the years. Like I think for a while she was called June Mei and Soy Girl? in America. Soy, Soy Girl. Oh, Soy Girl. I thought you said Boy Girl. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, in America, she she typed her name Y dot M A Y Kin, so like uh-huh. Y May Kin. Uh-huh. Um, but I'll I'll be calling her Yai May okay. for the most part. Okay. Um. Okay. So she was a doctor, a dietitian, a world traveler, and an overall kind of interesting lady, mm-hmm. and basically. So I've been, like, trying to get back into cooking and baking and stuff now that it's cold out. And I'm yeah. like, what do I do <laughs> now that I live in a northern state and mm-hmm. it's so cold? So I was looking for a food scientist or, like, you know, kind of an OG food scientist. Ooh, and, yeah. Yeah. And so I found her and it's – and, yeah, she's pretty much credited with introducing soy to the United States. And we'll get into that. But she lived, like, a whole life before she even did that. And it's pretty interesting. So I'm excited. Okay. I'm ready. Yeah. So Yai Take me on a trip. Was, yeah. I got this. We got this. Okay. <laughs> Yai Mei Kin was born in 1864 in the Chekiang province of China, which is near Shanghai. Okay. And her parents were well-to-do members of Chinese aristocracy, um, and they had both converted to Christianity, I think, from Confucianism um, prior to... Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote prior to Yaimi's death. Oh, I... no. Oh, gosh. Okay. They had both converted to Christianity prior to Yaimi's birth. <laughs> uh-huh. Makes sense. And her father was a pastor and had even opened a church in their t- town. So it was very well known by people in the region. Mm-hmm. When she was two years old, however, both of her parents and many townsfolk died after an epidemic of cholera, uh, some sources say, hit the region. Uh. So at two years old, she and her older brother were orphaned, Aww. which is pretty sad. Yeah. Collar is a bad way to go. Yeah, I would not. Ugh. Would yeah. not recommend. No, don't recommend. So there were two American medical missionaries that were working in the church and in the area at the time, and they'd become friends with her parents. And these people were Dr. Divey Bethune McCarty and Mrs. Juana McCarty. Okay. And they decided to adopt Yaime and her older brother. Aww. So luckily, you know, even though her parents died, she was taken in pretty much immediately to mm-hmm. this American family. Nice. And for a few years, they stayed in China um, to continue their medical missionary work, her new adoptive parents. And... Um, her adoptive mother, Juana, started teaching her English, and 
she would also go with her adopted father um, on his like medical duties and stuff. And she basically started becoming interested in medicine at that time, okay. watching him. Gotcha. Yeah. Let's see. In 1869, when Yaime was five years old, the family went to America. They traveled to America. And just as a reminder, she she travels a lot throughout her life, and it's all by boat. So oh, my God. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, she travels more than, like, anyone I know, and it's all by boat. From, like, China to America and back, uh, like, at least once a year throughout all of her life. It's pretty crazy. Oh, I wonder how long that um, took. How I was going to look it up, and I totally forgot. I bet it would take a month. Yeah, like... Longer? It's got to take about a month, based on no information that I have, but it just seems... Yeah. That's so long to be seasick. Yeah. <laughs> to be seasick. <laughs> yeah. She must have had an iron stomach, because, mm-hmm. like... I don't know. I would just not want to travel, you know, if that yeah. was the case. If I got seasick every time. Yeah. Maybe you just get okay. used to it. Maybe we're weak. <laughs> yeah. So, let's see. So, they kind of moved to America for a year or so when she was five. And that's where when she really became much more fluent in English. Mm-hmm. Said a bunch of sources. But I'm like... That's just when people become fluent in anything, right? Yeah. When they're five. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, you're not fluent in any language before you're five. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I kind of, you know, at least just from this early stage, she was fluent in these two very different languages. Okay. Um, at the end of the year, though, they moved back to China to continue Dr. McCarty's medical missionary work. And then a couple years later, they moved to Japan. When right. he received a job at the Ministry of Education in Tokyo. Okay. So there, Dr. McCarty lectured in anatomy, physiology, and zoology, and a number of other subjects. Um, and he would take Yaime along with him to lectures and field trips. Aww. That's um, cute. Yeah. And she met a lot of other scholars from around the world during this time. She was friends with their kids, and so these were, like, American families, Japanese families. The whole lot. Yeah, and she took lessons in literature from her mother. So she was gaining this very unique education and had Mm -hmm. a very unique life that would really shape um, her future, like, pretty immensely. Okay. Okay. So, in 1880, when Yaime was 16, her parents moved back to the United States from Japan. And although she's not, she was not a citizen of the United States, they let her in because she was the adopted daughter of two American citizens. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty amazing because around that time, um, America had a very anti-Chinese immigrant attitude. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember all the history of that time and why, you know, people felt that way. Uh-huh. But only a few years later, um, people from China were basically banned from immigrating to the United huh. States. It, unless you were like a member of the aristocracy. Gotcha. And then okay. they would be. Yeah. And so she was kind of 
accepted because not only was she educated, but her parents were American, right? Do you know what years that um, was? That was like late 1800s, mid, like the 1870s? I think it was 70s? 1882. 18, okay. 1882. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, they came to the U.S. and settled down in New York, New York City. Woo-woo! And yeah, she started attending seminary school immediately because she thought she might want to be a pastor or something, uh-huh. I think. But after a few years, she decided to enter medical school at the Women's Medical College in New York City. Nice. A few years later, she graduated at the top of her class, becoming the first Chinese woman to receive an MD in the United States. Very cool. Very yeah, cool. and uh, she was only 21, and she received an MD. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of just, she's kind of a prodigy in a sense. Like, mm-hmm. everything she does, she does really well, and people already are, have started to know her, and, like, she's having articles written about her just because she kind of stands out, you yeah. know? Um she sort of becomes famous, I guess, at an early age, I think. At least in some, you know, high society intellectual circles. She's gotcha. starting to become kind of famous. Yeah. High society. Yeah, high society. High society. Which is how everybody talks in high society. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, after she completed her MD, she went on to do some postgraduate studies during which time she, I mean, I saw, like, she did a bunch of different things, like moving from Boston to Philly to D.C. Um, some of the things she did, she completed a residency at an infant asylum. Oh. I don't know. I I don't think that means, like, they're crazy. I think it's more <laughs> asylum in the sense of... Um, a safe place for... Children? Yeah, maybe orphaned okay. kids or something like that. Because like, an infant asylum sounds I know. just yeah. really dark and dire. Right, but I think it's it's more like a children's hospital is what okay. you would call it today. Okay. Um, she learned German. Like, she just started taking yeah. German lessons with someone. Um. She became an expert at medical microphotography of human tissue and published a very well-regarded article about this subject at the time. Yeah, I couldn't find a lot more on that, but it was basically like she figured out how to take really great photographs of medical specimens using a microscope and wrote an article all about how this... Uh, kind of technology could revolutionize medicine and it was like a big hit um okay so in 1887 when she was 23 she decided to complete a medical mission in china so she moved there um but only a year after arriving there she contracted malaria and Uh. decided to move to japan where she could receive better medical treatment Gotcha. And she had this dream, basically, of improving medicine in China, mm-hmm. um, especially after studying in the U.S. and seeing how good Western medicine was for treating a lot of diseases um, and how she thought she could bring those practices to China and really mm-hmm. 
was hopeful about doing that. Um, I've got to say, like, that's some low standards. Like, the late 1800s medicine was not great, so... No, not even, not anywhere (laughs) wasn't that great. Yeah. So, like, maybe we, we, like, sterilized things before we sawed people's legs off at that point. I mean, it was even just vaccines, like, the thought of vaccines, Mm. you know? Yes. Uh, Stuff like that, yeah. Vaccines are very good. Yeah. Well, she moved to Japan, and, you know, she'd already spent quite a bit of her life there and knew it pretty well. And so while she was there, um, she set up a women's and children's medical clinic in, clinic in Kobe, you know, where the beef comes from. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and at the clinic, she worked as head doctor, nurse, and clerical assistant be- during a time when there were rampant epidemics throughout Japan. You know, she really just was trying to revolutionize medicine in the East at that point. And kind of took it on all herself, which was mm-hmm. pretty crazy. She also would give lectures on medicine and what she learned in America. And she taught locals modern medical skills, or at the okay. time, what was modern, you know? Yeah. And so she became very well respected in the region and well known throughout the whole medical community over the next five years that she spent in Japan running this women's medical clinic. In 1894, so now she's, what, she's seven, she's 30, okay? Okay. Uh, She's 30 years old. She marries a man with an extremely long name. (laughs) His name She marries a man with an extremely long name? Yeah, his name is very long. I don't even know what part of it is the last name, uh-huh. but I'm going to say it. Okay. okay. I thought you were is... going to say long neck and was excited. No, his name is Hippolytus Leasola Amador Essa da Silva. He has six names. <laughs> that does not sound Chinese. No. Okay. He is a half Portuguese, half Spanish man who was born in the British colony of Hong Kong called Macau. Have you ever heard of that? M A C A U. Um, so his parents were European but had moved to this British part of Hong Kong. Gotcha. And raised him there for quite a while. Okay. And he was a linguist and a musician. And no reports that I read knew what he was doing in Japan when they met. (laughs) Sketchy. But he's kind of a shady character, which we'll Uh find out soon. (laughs) So they get married, and then almost immediately they move to Hawaii together, where she had been to Hawaii previously, um, just with her parents, basically Mm -hmm. doing more medical missionary work with them. And so they moved to Hawaii, which had not yet been annexed by the United States, but I think would soon be. Mm -hmm. Um, So she applied for her license to practice medicine in the U.S. And in the meantime, um, becomes pregnant and has gives birth to their son, Alexander. Does he have a long name too? Well, his, you know, he has his dad's whole last name. So I think his name was Alexander. Oh, shoot. Where's the name? 
Alexander <laughs> Amadora Essa da Silva or something. Okay. Or maybe just Alexander Essa da Silva. Uh-huh. But the next year, her husband moves to San Francisco, Bay Area, and I think she moved with him. Um, but quickly, she quickly became super bored of living with her husband and son, and she just loved to travel. Mm-hmm. So she started touring the country to give lectures on Chinese and Japanese medicine. So she's kind of has this dual personality, right? Like in China and Japan, she lectures on Western medicine and traditions and how they can help um, in those countries where mm-hmm. when she comes back to America, she lectures on Chinese and Japanese traditions and how they could be incorporated into American culture and medicine. Yeah. So really I mean, trying. Yeah. It makes sense trying to do some cross pollination. Like let's take the best things of Western and Eastern yeah. medicine. And she was just particularly well suited to doing this, right? Cause she yeah. knew the languages and could communicate with everybody and she was well educated. So, and just in a a place in society where people respected her. So people would like lots of people would come to her lectures and, you know, at the time she was this really interesting personality because she would wear traditional Chinese robes and then speak in English fluently and this like fascinated people, you know, Uh they were like, how could this be? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, pretty ridiculous. So, um, but she enjoyed it, you know, and she knew who she was in a sense and what people thought of her, I think. Okay. So about five or six years into this tour of the country, she and her husband officially divorce and she gains full custody of their son Now, it sounds like what happened is soon after they moved to San Francisco, um, her husband, she basically deserted the family and her husband filed for divorce along basically claiming that she deserted them. Uh Um, And here's something from the divorce proceedings. Tell me. Tell me. Yeah, it says they came to San Francisco where she wearied of him in 1902, him being her husband. She went back to Japan and left their eight-year-old boy in charge of persons in Berkeley, (laughs) meaning like she just didn't, she told everybody that her eight-year-old was in charge, not her husband. (laughs) And when (laughs) when she returned to San Francisco, um, De Silva... Wait, that's not his name. When she returned to San Francisco, he met her and asked her to live with him again. But she declined on the ground that she had lecture engagements to fill in the East. So she just wasn't interested in staying at home. You know, she wanted to travel and she just felt like she had this duty to everyone in the world, essentially, to kind of mesh medicines from East and West. (laughs) Yeah. Um, anyway, she didn't seem to like person. her husband for for. No. I mean, if she if she put her son in charge, that's kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah, her eight year old son. <laughs> He's like, I just want to be a child. I don't want to be in charge of yeah. the finances. 
yeah, very odd family relationships uh-huh. all around. So let's see. By this time, yeah, people are fascinated by her and by her story, and they're the American people are super interested in ch- learning more about Chinese culture and medicine. And she's lecturing specifically to a lot of women's clubs, telling them a lot about soy and tofu as nutritious okay. meat alternatives. I was okay. about to ask, how do we get to soy? <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially, I, I don't know what made her. I think she basically came to America and was like, why are we spending all this money and energy to produce meat when you can get protein and nutrition from soy, which is Mm -hmm. much cheaper to produce. And, you know, she had eaten it throughout her childhood and knew it was delicious and all the different ways you could use soy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but then she would describe it like, like this it tastes a little bit like brains and a little bit like sweetbreads <laughs> which <laughs> That's is like not... who's eating brains and sweetbreads <laughs> aren't you know aren't sweetbreads just brains sweetbreads are intestines oh okay well yeah. that's i don't think that's gonna convince anyone <laughs> right I'm like weird thing to say yeah <laughs> I mean, I've never had either um, of those things, but. Right. Oh, I've had sweetbreads. They're really good, actually. Yeah. Do they taste they, like tofu? I mean, it's. Um, honestly, a tiny bit, I guess. The texture. Okay. They're much fattier, though. Like, that's yeah. the whole point is they're very fatty. Mm. But you, could, yeah, I wouldn't just eat them from anyone. Yeah. You know, uh, just personally, I, I'm not that brave. God, I wish tofu had like a thick layer of of fat right that's the only thing tofu is really missing yeah i am i need that (laughs) marble i want some of that marbled tofu fat the juicy (laughs) oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. all right so yeah so this is when she starts like getting into people's trying to get into people's heads like soy is great right Mm -hmm. and Becoming this sort of unofficial dietitian or, like, nutritionist, you know? Lecturing on nutrition. Um, Okay. But getting back a little bit to her personal life. So, this was just interesting to me. (laughs) Tell me. So, soon after, about a year after she and her husband officially divorced, he is arrested for quote, importing women from China to the U.S. for immoral purposes. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's where I'm like, he's a shady character. (laughs) Was he? So he was part of the, like, sex trip? Like, no, what what is, like, human trafficking? Um, so it's weird. So he was eventually acquitted meaning that they couldn't find evidence of this. Okay. But he was part of some business where he was bringing people from the East to work in a circus in the United States, Uh basically acrobats. Uh Uh-huh. And 
in this essential, uh, this is what I could get from the story. Like he was part of a shipment of acrobats from China to the U.S., about a uh-huh. hundred people. Okay. And four people on this boat, four women, claimed that they were essentially enslaved and brought oh. over by him and his business partner and brought over, in the article it just says, for immoral purposes, which, oh, you God. know, must be, yeah. So the thing is, he's acquitted, but I'm like, you know, is he acquitted because he's American and it's like their word against uh-huh. his word? Basically, he seems sketchy to me. Yeah. Um, because by the time he's acquitted, he's also engaged to two new women, one of whom is 17. <laughs> uh, I mean, he was good that she left them. her stuff to her son. Right. Look, it's Look. it's crazy. But around this time, Yaime officially moves her son away from his father in San Francisco before he's acquitted, after he's accused of these awful crimes. Yeah. Um, and she moves him to a family in upstate New York, um, she, basically to live with. She moves him to live in Syracuse, essentially, for the rest of his life. But not not with her. That she was friends with. No, okay. <laughs> not with her. Okay. It's unclear how often she visits him. I think uh-huh. she might have visited him quite a bit. And maybe he even visited her quite a bit. Because mm-hmm. it seems like they were close. But it's okay. weird because I don't think he ever lived with her from what I can tell. Interesting. So, uh, very strange. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and she was close family friends with this family in upstate New York and seemed to want her son to just have a more normal life than mm-hmm. she had, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, makes sense if you're traveling and, all the time. Yeah. She also, from then on, referred to herself as widowed, <laughs> <laughs> despite her ex-husband still being alive. <laughs> He's dead to me. Yeah. And she changed, she had changed her name to have his last name, but change mm-hmm. it back to Ken yeah. um, after they divorced. So pretty crazy. Yeah, that was an interesting side <laughs> side adventure into her life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's see. In 1905, so now she's about 40, 41, she moved back to China. Where she was appointed head of the government women's hospital in Tianjin. Mm -hmm. So finally, she's kind of realizing her dream of opening her own hospital and bringing Western medical practices to China specifically. Okay. And a year later, um, she also founded a nursing school named the Northern Medical School for Women which primarily enrolled women from poorer families in the region to Mm -hmm. learn uh, nursing skills, which is really cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And um, with this, a lot of people credit her for being, for starting nursing education in China. Oh, okay. Which is insane. Uh She was the first person to start training nurses in China. Uh, versus midwives, which were the traditional nurses of the time. This was more, you know, Western medicine type nursing, right? Mm -hmm. During this time, while she was primarily working in China, she would still travel back and forth 
between China and other countries, including the U.S., so that she could learn as much as she could about new technologies being used all over the world, and then sharing what she's learned from her work in China with other countries. And often when she would travel to the U.S., she would bring women from her schools in China to the U.S. to get them into medical school in the U.S., which is really crazy. Because there was still kind of this anti-Chinese attitude in the United States. Yeah, helping women from China basically get a medical education in the U.S. like she did and become um, doctors at Johns Hopkins and other really famous medical schools. So always really promoting women in Mm -hmm. medicine. That's awesome. And in 1914, she specifically brought soybeans from China to the USDA or the agricultural, the government agricultural department in the US. So she found, I think she brought four or five different varieties of soybean um, so that they could start studying them Mm -hmm. because some were used for eating as beans, where others were used for making milks or vermicelli or, you know, just other food products. And at this time, World War One was now kind of in swing. And in 1917, the U.S. had entered the war and her son Alexander enlists. Gotcha. Okay. The same year, 1917, she was appointed by the USDA to study soybeans. And so they had become interested in them after working with the seeds she had brought over and after Mm -hmm. hearing about and after trying what was called tofu bean cheese, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Which is just fermented tofu. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the Bureau of Chemistry, which is now, which is kind of a predecessor to the FDA or Mm -hmm. the Federal Drug Administration. They hired her to go to China and research soy products. <laughs> okay. Which I think was is kind of funny because I feel like they could have just asked her, you know. Yeah. Like, Tell us know, about these soy uh, products. She probably knew enough, yeah. And this is because meat production, you know, wasn't as big as it is now. Yeah. And they couldn't feed the masses. Mm-hmm. Um with me in an affordable way because it required a lot of energy to produce, which yeah. it still does now, but energy mm-hmm. is way cheaper now, right? Yeah. So she had been espousing soy for some time, especially because it's so much cheaper, less energy intensive to produce, yet still nutritious. Um, and because they were interested in using soy to bulk up military rations with protein right yeah that makes sense more affordable way yeah so she went back to china and started investigating the different ways that people in china use soy and she would go to people's homes and document how soy was made into different products like how people were fermenting it in different ways um and then upon her return, maybe six months later, she had a soybean mill built for the USDA in New York State. Nice. And basically opened a lab where she began experimenting 
on how to make soybeans into products that American people would actually eat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's like through soy milks, tofu, whatever. Um, however, in about that same year, only a few months before the end of World War One, her son was killed in battle. Aww. And I think, yeah, this like really changed her. Um, and I think the the next year her her adopted mother passed away as well. Uh -huh. And after this, it seems like she retired to China and kind of became reclusive. Gotcha. Um, she would have people over to her house a lot, but she stopped traveling as much and mm -hmm. giving lectures and stopped her research on soy. Gotcha. But yeah. And then in 1934, she passed away at the age of 70 after contracting pneumonia. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, that's Yaime Ken and her very crazy whirlwind of a story. Mm -hmm. I liked it. No, that's that's cool. Yeah. I, I was wondering if she met Florence Nightingale because they kind of, well, they overlap, and especially right. if she's starting to take all of this more modern nursing information yeah, back to China I, and I don't know I didn't read anything about that but I would guess that they did meet because she would travel to Europe too mm -hmm. so it would only make sense but yeah I'm not quite sure more fan fiction um, for someone to write for us yeah exactly yeah so yeah she's an interesting woman it seems like you know she really like revolutionized medicine and nursing in China mm -hmm. and even revolutionized it somewhat here in the U S or at least revolutionized our diet eventually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love me some soy. Yeah. It was hard for me to find more on her actual research on soy or mm -hmm. if she ever wrote anything up. It seems like once like, she, once she stopped working on it, it sort of died for whatever yeah. reason. You know, no one else really took up... Maybe someone took up the research, but it just never caught on in, in the public for some reason. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, at least not for a while. We we had to wait for all the, the drug use in the 60s for people yeah. to be like, I, I want to eat this weird... I want soy milk, not dairy. yeah. I want something yeah. that's a combination of head cheese and brains. <laughs> oh. Yeah. That's what I'm craving. So, yeah. Interesting woman and pretty interesting life. Pretty mm -hmm. unique life, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I like that. That was great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Shall we work? Yeah. Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Alexa. And have you always been curious if Winona Ryder is actually crazy? Are you dying to learn how to stay out of a cult? Then you should definitely check out the Psyched Podcast. The podcast where two psychotherapists analyze real and fictional figures from pop culture and tell you all about the obscure psychological phenomenon that your Psych 101 class didn't have time to tell you about. So grab your cocktail and head over to thepsychedpodcast.com and check us out. And don't forget to go to therapy and get your shit together. Bye. All right. So this is our women who work section, giving shout outs Ooh. to badass ladies making herstory today. 
not well All this right. was friday Give it to but me. yeah uh so my yeah. shout out goes to dr velislava petrova and colleagues for a paper that came out friday from science immunology which discussed Ooh, the long-term effects of measles on immunity. Oh, cool. So uh, Dr. Velislava Petrova is a postdoc at the Welcome Sanger Institute in the UK. Okay, cool. So uh, I don't know how much you know about the effects of measles. About the effects of measles? Like the long-term effects of getting measles. Oh, no, no. Mm-mm. Oh. So it's been known for a while that measles infection causes this extremely strong immunosuppression for up to like oh. five years after infection. Oh my gosh, no way. And I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so people can get uh, infected after measles with things that they should be immune to at that point. Like if you got the chicken pox. Oh. Before you got measles, and then you have measles, then you could get the chicken pox again after. Oh my gosh, that's really bad. Yeah, so, so what this means... basically mean- stops you from making memory cells, maybe? Or stops your memory cells from, like, uh, mounting a response once they've come into contact with something you should be immune to. Yeah. The research that... Uh, Dr. Petrova worked on was trying to understand how this affects memory cells. Oh, cool, cool. But I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So what this really means for if you are a person that gets measles, then you're going to have more illnesses and infections afterwards than somebody who doesn't get measles. Right, right. And actually, the majority of measles-associated deaths are caused by secondary infections because your oh. immune system is low. So a lot of people argue oh, I have no idea. A lot of people argue that well, measles is a pretty mild disease and like often people don't die from measles, but the issue is that all of these other secondary infections you get because measles lowers your immune system. That's one of the big problems. Right. So the mechanism for this this long-term lowered immunity hasn't really been known. And so in this paper, Dr. Petrova and her associates were interested in a specific type of immune cell called a B memory cell, which is kind of what you mentioned earlier. And so these B memory cells are a type of white blood cell that stores the memory of previous infections or immunizations. Uh, And these cells have receptors that bind to a specific antigen, such as, you know, a bacteria or chickenpox or something like that. Yeah. Um, that the body has previously fought off or has been exposed right. to via a vaccine. And so if you got the chicken pox before, you would have these white blood cells with receptors that can perfectly fit and hold on to a chicken pox cell um, that you may come into contact with later on. And so these cells provide you with immunity from getting sick from a disease that you've already come into contact with. Yeah, right. Yeah, there are little helpers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're the whole reason vaccines work. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So if you've been exposed in your life to a v- wide variety of pathogens, like you got the flu, you got the chicken pox, you got a couple of vaccines, then you should have this large diversity of these B-cell receptors, which provides you mm-hmm. with immunity to each of these various 
pathogens you've come into contact with previously. Yeah, exactly. So in this study, the authors found that the diversity of your B memory cell receptors significantly decreases after getting measles, Oh, but not after getting a measles vaccine. So essentially you lose the memory of these previous infections. It doesn't even just suppress memory cells. It actually gets rid of your memory cells. Yeah, so you have a like lot of them. you yeah. end up with you the same number of memory cells after a certain period of time, but the diversity right. of receptors is a lot lower. So you have lost oh. a lot of memory. So maybe it's your memory cells have to like I don't know. Does your body destroy some memory cells to like make way for new memory cells? Or do the memory cells change into different memory cells? I don't think that can happen, but I don't know. I think, yeah, I'm not positive what the mechanism is of lowering diversity, but the reason why you are immunosuppressed is because you have a lower diversity of memory cells. That's really interesting and scary. Yes. So this means that after contracting measles, your body is not able to recognize and quickly destroy these types of diseases that it should be able to. Right. And that also means that if you got vaccines previously and then get measles, you may not be um, immune to those yeah. Diseases. So it has a lot of effects for like herd immunity and for other diseases as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, wow. That's which makes it that's really I mean, it's good that we know that mm-hmm. then it really kind of shows how important specifically the MMR vaccine yes. is, which is one that people avoid because of the whole like fake autism yes. MMR like research story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I think it when people argue that measles isn't a serious disease because people don't right tend to die or the the mortality rate of children that get measles is relatively low for specifically the measles infection. Mm-hmm. There's a very there's a relatively high incidence of death associated with these secondary infections that are caused by measles wiping out your immunological memory. Yeah. And that can last up to five years. So even if measles doesn't kill you, you have immunosuppression for five years after that. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So we're we're now this this paper's cool because we're figuring out a bit more of why this happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's my shout out. Yeah, that's really awesome. What a really great research study. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very diseasey episode, a bit or health, human yeah. health. Weirdly, like disease and like soy, random <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thanks for listening to our episode. If you liked it, please rate, review, and subscribe. We still, for the next week, we're going to have a survey out um, that will be part of, like, in our description, there should be a link to the survey. So please go fill that out. Super short. Helps us figure out who our audience is and to make the podcast better. 
And yeah. I want to give a final shout out to Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art and to Artichoke for our theme music. Woo! Woo! And as always, go, go stimulate, stimulate yourself! yourself. <laughs> Bye! Bye, circa 1820, she ran a